Hey everyone and welcome to Defecto. This is a podcast from the perspective of two students who are currently trying to survive the IB. I'm Judy. And I'm Amelia. And today, instead of freezing because the clocks have turned back and it's so cold, we're going to be talking about neurobiology, specifically neurotransmitters. So, to start off with, what are neurotransmitters? Well, when something happens, okay, let's give the example that everyone uses. For example, I touch a hot object right now because see above, read, very cold and I need to drink something hot. So if I touch a hot object right now and I pick up a can of boiling water, what's actually likely to be, happen is I will tip my hand back instantly, right? But actually, it's not as simple as that. So what was happening was I was, t- I was having a nervous response. And a nervous system, which is what controls nervous response, is basically how your body responds to the outside world. So it involves both the nervous and endocrine systems. So the nervous system is probably what you know best. It's the one with neurons and also what we're going to be talking about today, which is neurotransmitters. So I will explain what that is later on, but just as a brief note, the endocrine system, which I mentioned, which is also part of the response to your outside world, is actually involving hormones, which we won't be covering today, but which we might do in a future episode. So when you touch a hot object, what happens? Well, everyone knows the reflex arc, right? We have to talk about it in GCSE biology. So basically what happens is you touch a hot object and the receptors in your hand realize that you're touching a hot object. So this travels down a sensory nerve to a relay, a sensory nerve to a relay nerve, which then tr- transfers it to a motor nerve, which then tells your muscles in your hand to pull away. And that's why you pull away from a hot object. But I think it's important to note that I mentioned three kinds of nerves, right? Because your body isn't just one continuous nerve. And because of that, we need neurotransmitters, which basically help bridge the gap between the nerves. So basically what happens is that when a signal gets to the end of each neuron, the signal doesn't actually jump between them or just go straight through. It actually activates the neurotransmitters to diffuse across, bind to the next neuron, and that's what triggers the response. So within neurotransmitters, we have four main types, and these are neurotransmitters which are amino acids, such as glutamate and GABA, which we'll be looking at later. And these fall into two main divisions, which are excitatory and inhibitory. Excitatory, they kind of get the neurons excited and they increase the probability that neurons will fire an action potential. So the probability that they'll pass the message along the next nerve. And the inhibitory ones therefore decrease this probability. The next type of neurotransmitters are monamines, and these are these include things like serotonin, histamines, dopamine, and norepinephrine, all of which we'll look at later on in the episode. And these are typically involved in attention, cognition, and emotion. The third type is peptides, and these include things like endorphins, and these are involved in pain responses. And then the final category is just other ones that don't really fall into one of the above categories. And acetylcholine is an example of this. And these are typically involved in motor function, in the autonomic nervous system and memory. Great. And actually, that's what we're going to be starting with. So acetylcholine. Acetylcholine was the first neurotransmitter we discovered. And I guess that's part of the reason why we're starting here. So essentially, what does acetylcholine do? It has to do with muscle action, learning, and memory. So for example, low levels of acetylcholine are linked to Alzheimer's. 
Because the brain impacts of acetylcholine aren't yet well understood, we'll focus on muscles today. So acetylcholine is made out of acetyl-CoA, which is involved in aerobic respiration, which is basically you breathing. And it's also made of choline, which is from the diet. So the food sources of choline, which isn't something you usually think about taking, are liver, so for example beef or chicken liver, um, eggs, cod, salmon, cauliflower, broccoli, soybean oil, lean chicken pork or pork, peas and milk. So that was a very long list, but all you need to know is that we actually do get manage to get a lot of choline. So for example, if you take two large eggs, it actually provides almost half of your daily requirement of choline. So why do we need acetylcholine? In many muscle junctions, we use it. So in the earlier example, it's what brings the motor neuron to your muscle, which directly influences your response. So here's an interesting thing about acetylcholine. Unlike most other neurotransmitters, when it's diffused across the synapse, which is basically the thing between neurons that I talked about just now, it doesn't break down. Uh, it, 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 no, sorry. Instead of being reabsorbed, which it would usually, it doesn't break. It's broken down. So acetylcholinesterase breaks it down into choline and acetate, which are then reabsorbed and reused. So why is this important? because of neonicotinoids, i.e. another word that I'm going to struggle to say. They're so-called because they're similar in structure to nicotine. So why are they important? Because they are used as pesticides. So in the central nervous system of insects, what neonicotinoids do is that they bind to the acetylcholine receptor because they are so similar in structure to acetylcholine. However, because they're not actually acetylcholine, acetylcholinist can't break them down and therefore they stay there. So that means that acetylcholine can't bind to these receptors and therefore you can imagine that since acetylcholine helps with muscles, that means that these insects um, can't move their muscles which results in paralysis and even death. So why are we discussing this? Because the good thing about neonicotinoids is that they don't affect humans because we have more receptors and the acetylcholine binds uh, and the neonicotinoids bind less strongly. So it doesn't really matter to us if these neonicotinoids get into the diet. But it does matter for a very helpful species, bees. So actually, unfortunately, because insects, bees are insects as well, these good insects are actually also harmed by these neonicotinoids. So while they can help us get rid of pests, they also help us get rid of the ones that we actually want around, which definitely isn't a good thing. So do we still use them? Well, in 2013, the European Union banned three of them, but virtually 100% of corn in the United States, Canada, Australia, and China still use them. Personally, in Britain, we're not sure if it's going to continue post-Brexit. There are suggestions that it will, but we're not sure yet. But it's important to note that the EU have only banned three of these neonicotinoids, and there are actually a lot more out there. So unfortunately, the impact on bees might just continue. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think often we just look at neurotransmitters when we're thinking about neurobiology, just in terms of humans and its impact on human health. But actually looking at the impact of pesticides, although it may not be harmful to us as humans, actually it can be very harmful to other species like bees that we so desperately need. So now moving on to our next neurotransmitter, which is glutamate. So let's start by looking at savoury foods. Why do they taste so good? 
Well, one Japanese professor wondered the exact same thing. In his specific case, he was wondering why kelp broth tasted so good. He noticed a unique taste in the broth that was different from sweet, sour, bitter and salty foods. The source of the taste he found to be glutamate. And this glutamate became responsible for the uh, Japanese flavour umami, which means delicious. So this professor then isolated the glutamate from the seaweed and combined it with sodium to form monosodium glutamate, more commonly known as MSG, which is used in seasoning. Oh my gosh, when you first said glutamate, I was starting to think of the th- what we know as MSG, and I was like, huh, glutamate, hmm, this sounds like food, this sounds like Japanese food, might it have something to do with it? And it's, I think it's so cool that it actually does have something to do with it. So tell us more, how does it work? Yeah, definitely. So that's how we get um, glutamate through our diet. And it comes from uh, foods such as meats, cheese, nuts, legumes. However, this doesn't actually, the, the amount of glutamate that we consume doesn't actually affect how much we use in the brain. And this is because glutamate in the brain as a neurotransmitter is classified as a non-essential amino acid. And this means that it's non-essential to get it through the diet because the brain can synthesize it itself. So because of the blood-brain barrier, um, glutamate that we receive from food can't actually pass through to the brain. So as I said, it's an amino acid and it's an excitatory amino acid. So this means it increases the likelihood of a neuron firing an action potential. So when glutamate activates a receptor, so when it binds to a receptor on a postsynaptic neuron, it allows more sodium ions to flow across the postsynaptic membrane. And this depolarizes the neuron or makes it more positive, which makes it more likely to fire an action potential and pass the message on, as it were. So we think that glutamate is involved in cognition, emotion, sensory information and motor coordination. So we can see that it's involved in a very large range of things. So does that mean that we should be eating as much glutamate as possible? I mean, MSG foods taste so good. Well, this brings me on to my next point, which is that glutamate actually follows the Goldilocks principle. So Goldilocks, she goes into a house of bears and she tastes the porridge. One is way too hot, the other is way too cold, but the middle one is just right and with glutamate we want a perfect balance of glutamate and this can be seen through what goes wrong when we have too much or too little of it so when we have too much glutamate um this is known as excitotoxicity did i say that right probably not but okay let's move on so this is also sometimes called a a glutamatergic storm This leads to damage of nerve cells um, due to excessive stimulation of the glutamate receptors. So this is either caused by too much glutamate or uh, receptor cells being too sensitive to glutamate. And ultimately, this causes an imbalance of calcium ions within the nerve cell, which causes the cell to die. 
high levels of glutamate have actually been um, linked to Huntington's disease. So in patients with Huntington disease, uh, glutamate receptors have been shown to be more have been shown to be oversensitive to glutamate and therefore glutamate can act as an excitotoxin and even though the levels of glutamate itself may not be abnormally high you still get the same damage because these uh, receptor cells are more sensitive to the glutamate that is there. So one potential treatment for this is anti-glutamate drugs and these either block the glutamate receptors to the so that less glutamate can bind to the cells or it makes the um or it reduces the glutamate being released that's what happens when you have too much glutamate or when glutamate acts as a toxin because the receptor cells are oversensitive on the other hand if you have too little glutamate it can actually lead to things like insomnia and concentration problems so that's our first amino acid neurotransmitter. I was just thinking, if you kind of like, because just now we talked about how glutamate doesn't actually cause the blood-brain barrier, right? But even though I asked that question just now, I think part of the reason why I asked it was because they, people always say, you know, don't eat so much MSG, it's so bad for you. So I, I was wondering whether like these two, too much glutamate and too little glutamate, does that come from our diet or does that come from when we naturally produce it? So I'm not sure on this one, but from my research, the effect in the brain is not a result of diet, but glutamate does work in other areas of the body and therefore an imbalance caused by too much or too little glutamate from the diet could affect these other functions. So now moving on to our next amino acid neurotransmitter, which is gamma aminobutyric acid. And that is the only time I'm going to say that because from now on, I'm going to refer to it as GABA because GABA is a lot easier to say. So GABA is actually synthesized by glutamate. So glutamate as a molecule has two carboxylic acid groups, one on either end. And glutamate undergoes decarboxylation to form GABA, which only has one carboxylic acid so it essentially loses a carboxylic acid group and this reaction is catalyzed by the enzyme glutamate decarboxylase which quite quite nicely shows us what's happening it's the removal of a carboxylic acid group from glutamate so this is known as the calming neurotransmitter and Typically, it's released in response to stress. So your brain's giving you a bit of a hand here. And normally, it will produce GABA to recreate this sense of calm. So our previous neurotransmitter, uh, glutamate, was an excitatory uh, neurotransmitter. And this one is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So this means that it decreases the likelihood of a neuron firing an action potential. And it does this by binding to ion channels on the neurons, which is permeable to negatively charged ions, um, such as chloride ions. So when the neurotransmitter binds to this channel, it opens the channel and it allows a flow of these negatively charged chloride ions into the cell, which inhibits the neuron as it makes it harder 
it makes it harder for the cell to reach the threshold for firing an action potential. Now I say normally GABA is produced, however when this production of GABA is disturbed, problems can arise. Conditions such as anxiety, seizures disorders and Parkinson's syndrome have all been related to low levels of GABA. Essentially, without GABA, the brain becomes overexcited and neurons send nerve impulses too often and too easily. So let's have a quick look at caffeine. So I personally am not a big coffee and tea drinker. I don't know about you, GE. Yeah, I will literally, it's it's a horrible question for me because you know the question where people always go, so do you drink coffee or tea? And I'm like, um, neither. (laughs) So yeah, I don't drink either. Yeah, I'm the exact same. I don't drink either, but recently Diet Coke has been my weakness. Um, But at school, I know a lot of my friends rely on their daily coffee or coffees to get them through a school day. Many people use caffeine to boost their energy levels and their concentration. And this is because caffeine inhibits the release of GABA, which increases the activity of the brain. However, like everything, we only want caffeine in moderation, and this also explains why too much caffeine leads to symptoms associated with low GABA levels, such as anxiety and addiction. Some people say, or some scientists have suggested taking GABA in the form of medication to help conditions such as anxiety. However, there's actually little scientific evidence to support this because of this blood-brain barrier uh, stopping the GABA from getting across but it could actually act as a placebo effect, so still helping alleviate the symptoms. Okay, so just on the subject of addiction, let's look at another hormone to do with it called dopamine. So briefly, let's give a quick introduction to dopamine. So dopamine is associated with learning, movement and pleasure. So as with the hormones that we've talked about, we need a kind of moderation of dopamine because too much of dopamine leads to schizophrenia and addictive or impulsive behavior. But what is dopamine other than being very, very popular? Actually, dopamine is what dictates the reward system, as YouTube would know, because for some reason, while I was doing research for this, I googled dopamine and all that came out was dopamine detox. Here is how to make your reward system work for you. But so what is this and how does it actually work? So for example, when you're eating food that you like or when lab animals are trained to press a button repeatedly that discharges their food, it's actually dopamine that's acting on you and telling you, oh, this is good, we like this, do this more. So that's actually how dopamine works um, in colloquial terms. So two areas produce, the dopamine, produce dopamine. And I am sorry in advance for completely buttering this, but basically there are two main sites that produce it. So one is called the substantia nigra in the midbrain, which is the part that controls movement. Because as you as I explained before, dopamine basically has kind of two main functions, which is movement and the reward system. So I actually found it really interesting because it's actually two sites of the brain that produce dopamine for two different things. So it's the midbrain that helps you with movement. And for example, if you don't get enough production of dopamine in the substantia nigra, that's why you get Parkinson's. And that's also why there are tremors during Parkinson's, because this dopamine is associated with movement. In contrast, the ventral tegmental area nearby is what controls the reward system that I talked about just now. 
I think the reward system is especially interesting. And as a quick example, let's look at cocaine. So when you take it, um, according to the internet, you get a high surge of kind of happiness. Like you feel really good about things. And that's because dopamine has really been activated here. But that actually also means that nothing else gives you the same drive. And that's part of the reason for addiction to drugs like cocaine. Because you've experienced such a high that nothing else gives you that high again except cocaine. And that's why you keep taking it, which really warns about the dangers of addiction. So as with anything, you need a balance. Because too little dopamine means that you're susceptible to depression and Parkinson's, as I talked about just now. So it also gives things like anxiety, muscle cramps, and low energy. Whereas too much is associated with agitation, stress, and paranoia, paranoia, as well as addiction and gambling. So now that we've talked about dopamine, let's take a complete segue and talk about histamine. But before we talk about histamine, I would like to talk about antihistamine. So as you can probably guess, antihistamines counter histamine's effect. If you've ever taken antihistamines, you probably notice sleepiness, or maybe they were used to treat acid reflux. So can you guess what the role of histamines are? Just as you might think, it helps keep us awake and also tells stomach cells to produce stomach acid. But another important use of histamine is in immune cell responses. So let's take a quick trip down the immune system. Basically what happens is when an invader is detected in your body, lymphocytes, which are B cells, make IgE antibodies. So mast cells and basophils, which are basically just fancy terms for other types of immune cells, then realize and release histamine. So histamine causes blood vessels to dilate, which has become wider, and become leakier, so more white blood cells can enter and get to the site of infection. So this works great for invaders, obviously, but sometimes it can go wrong because this is unnecessary. For example, pollen, which might also be recognized as an invader, and cause this response, but actually pollen isn't actually going to invade us or cause the harms that, for instance, pathogenic bacteria might. So histamine response is different in different areas of the body. So for instance, if it's pollen, mucus might also be produced. But in your gut, there's a different system. And that's what explains food allergies. Leaky vessels, while good for invaders, in these cases, in allergies, can cause swelling, itching, and in severe cases, anaphylaxis, which is basically just a really severe reaction to allergies. This is really, really bad because if, you know, for example, if it's your air vessels that are swollen, it makes it really hard to breathe. If you have leaky blood vessels, you know, you have less blood pressure. And that might mean that because you can't plump blood around the body as quickly, your organs might not get blood. And that's why in severe cases, allergies can lead to death. But there's hope because we can counter this with epinephrine slash adrenaline. So, just to talk about adrenaline quickly, what adrenaline does is adrenaline is really, really very known for activating the fight or flight response. So basically, you know, you might know the colloquial saying of, oh, I just got a huge rush of adrenaline. And what that basically is, is it's something that makes you ready to fight. It's one of those things that natural selection left us just to make sure that we would be able to activate a response quickly when we were faced with danger. So that's why adrenaline is able to counter histamine's effects, because what it in fact does is it prepares our body to fight. Yeah, so another um, perhaps less well-known neurotransmitter slash hormone 
that is very cr- closely related to adrenaline is noradrenaline or norepinephrine. So norepinephrine is involved in a range of things, including the sleep-wake cycle. Um, so it helps to wake us up. It increases attention and focusing. It's involved in memory storage and in speeding up reaction time. So it's part of the it's uh, the levels of norepinephrine actually increase as part of the fight or flight response. So essentially, it makes your body more alert and ready to either fight the threat or run away as fast as you can from it. And like with anything, an an imbalance of norepinephrine can lead to um, problems. So for example, low levels of epinephrine have been associated with ADHD. So ADHD was actually the first disorder found to be the result of a specific neurotransmitter deficiency. And so this neurotransmitter is produced in four different regions of the brain. Your frontal cortex, which is involved in maintaining attention, organisation and executive function. The limbic system, which regulates uh, regulates emotions and so a deficiency in this area could cause restlessness, inattention and emotional volatility. The basal ganglia, which regulates communication, so it's basically like the communication hub for the brain where all the messages come in and it sends all the messages back out. And deficiencies in this can cause inattention and impulsivity. And also the final section is the reticular activating system, which is the major relay system for areas that enter and leave the brain. So... As these areas interact with each other, a deficiency in just one area can disturb others. And as we've seen, deficiencies in these areas lead to the common symptoms of ADHD, such as restlessness and uh, poor ability to concentrate and things like that. So that just kind of explains a bit about why, um, a bit about how norepinephrine works and what happens when you have too little of it. Yeah, I think that's all really cool. So what we're going to move on to is actually one of the things Amelia brought up just now about the sleep-wake cycle. So in our last episode, we talked about melatonin, but actually melatonin doesn't tell the whole story of your sleep. And neither does adenosine as well, spoiler alert. But anyway, let's talk about adenosine. So remember adenosine triphosphate, ATP? Well, as in the name, it's adenosine and three phosphate groups. So cells basically make it an aerobic respiration from glucose and oxygen, and that's why we're able to use it for energy. Because if it undergoes phosphorylation, which basically just means that it loses one phosphate group, it becomes adenosine diphosphate because tri2 minus 1 is di, and then monophosphate because you know, 2 minus 1, and then adenosine because it's lost all its phosphates. So you can see that... Um, so as you can imagine... Being awake kind of takes more energy than being asleep, right? So, for example, if you don't believe me, go to a sleeping friend or sleeping family member and lift their arm up carefully. But be careful because I don't think you really want to wake them up. I don't think they would be very nice about that. But anyway, as you can imagine, phosphorylation, which therefore releases energy, is more common when we're awake. So, from that... 
argument, you can then see why the concentration of adenosine builds up the longer we're awake because of the dephosphorylation of adenosine triphosphate, but also because of exocytosis, which is basically when your cells release adenosine into the extracellular space, the space between cells. We're still not entirely sure why this happens, but the fact is that it does, and that's what contributes to the buildup of adenosine. So when adenosine is produced, it binds to receptors, and the more receptors are bound to, the sleepier you feel. So that's what creates this effect of sleep pressure. During sleep, your glymphatic system actually washes the adenosine away. So what exactly happens is that a flow of cerebrospinal fluid dislodges this adenosine. So the longer you sleep, the more adenosine is washed away. And that's why, you know, if you take an afternoon nap, for example, you're not as sleepy as night because part of your adenosine has already been cleared away. That's also part of the reason why if you're tired, uh, why you don't get, why if you don't get enough sleep, you get tired because you don't have enough, you haven't had enough time to wash all this adenosine away from the receptors. So, because we mentioned caffeine just now, let um, let's bring it up again, because actually, caffeine doesn't just have to do with GABA. It has to do with adenosine as well. So, caffeine. Hmm. Most people might know it as a lifesaver. But, just bringing it back to our previous episode, let's talk a bit about melatonin and adenosine to explore how caffeine works in relation to our sleep cycle. So, what happens with melatonin? Basically, melatonin is what happens in response to the light or lack of it. So, you know, when there's no light, then you start producing melatonin and that's what makes you go to sleep. Whereas adenosine is there throughout the day. So, just as some extra information, melatonin circulates in your bloodstream and your cerebrospinal fluid. So, with that in mind, Amelia, do you think that caffeine affects melatonin or adenosine? Um... Given that melatonin circulates the bloodstream, I'd say melatonin, but I feel like the answer is going to be adenosine. (laughs) Yep, it's adenosine. But the reason why is actually quite interesting, because it's actually similar to that neonicotinoid and acetylcholine thing that I talked about before. Basically, caffeine and um, caffeine and adenosine are similar in structure, and your body, unfortunately, isn't great about telling the difference. So caffeine binds to that same receptors that adenosine does. But caffeine actually has an opposite effect to adenosine. So what happens is that ad- uh, while adenosine kind of, you know, tells the cells to slow down, it's time to go to sleep, caffeine says, hey, wake up, let's do this. So what it causes is that reinvigoration and sudden energy that you get after you drink caffeine. But not that I would know, but if you drink caffeine, you would know that you get a caffeine crash a few hours after you drink some. And this caffeine crash is both figurative and literal because caffeine actually gets broken down the longer it stays in your body. And when it gets broken down, your adenosine can bind to these receptors again. So there's this sudden binding of a lot of, um, a lot of adenosine to all of these receptors, and suddenly you realize how sleepy you are, and that's what causes the caffeine crash. Yeah, that's really interesting, I think, just to kind of explain actually how caffeine works and the whole process of it being taken in and then broken down. And... To finish our podcast, we're going to talk about the happy hormones. So these are endorphins and serotonin. So starting with endorphins, let's have a look at the actual word. So endorphins is made of two words, endogenous, which means growing or or originating from within the body, and morphine, which we all know as a very powerful painkiller. 
but morphine actually comes from the word morpheus which was the god of dreams in greek mythology so we can see there how it's just kind of yeah so um it comes from a pain um pain relief that originates within the body so endorphins um our understanding of how endorphins work began in the early 1970s when scientists began looking at how the brain is affected by opiates and the results well opiates bind to specialized receptors um neatly called opioid receptors and block or hinder the cell's transmission of pain signals and endorphins work in a very similar way by binding to receptors to block or reduce pain signals and so endorphins are pain and stress relievers they're mainly produced in the hypothalamus and pituitary gland and we all know of the ways that we can enhance endorphine levels such as through exercise physical pain actually releases endorphins laughter eating chocolate in some cases have been shown to increase production of endorphin and spices because apparently the pain from the actual spices releases endorphins and that's why they feel so good even though it's painful to eat Do you know what? My dad would love to hear that because he really loves eating chocolate. I think chocolate is definitely one of those things that really makes a lot of people feel happy. As I would know from our fridge full of chocolate that suddenly disappears after my dad gets home from work. Yes, chocolate is definitely good and makes you feel good, so keep eating chocolate. Um so in a study in 2017 some scientists actually look, looked at the effect of laughter on endorphins and they did this using positron uh, emission t- tomography or pet scans so participants were injected with radioactive compound binding to their brain's opioid receptors and this radioactivity was measured using the pet scans in the first condition participants had laughed together with their close friends and uh the second condition they'd spent a comparable amount of time alone in the lab and the results unexpectedly showed that endorphin levels were actually much higher after laughter with friends than when participants were on their own and furthermore we can see this effect the powerful effect of endorphins when we have too little of it and too little endorphins uh too little endorphins can actually um increase the chance of having depression or fibromyalgia which is a chronic syndrome causing bodily pain so moving on to serotonin which is very commonly known as the happy co- chemical so it's made from the essential amino ad- acid tri- trypto- tryptophan and so as it's an essential amino acid it has to be got through the diet and we think it contributes to motor cognitive and autonomic functions serotonin itself is actually found in a very small part of the brain called rafe nuclei but although the place where it's produced is so small it has such a massive impact on um the rest of the body and so like with endorphins low levels have been linked to depression and this is where we think about the serotonin theory so this is where the serotonin theory states that an impulse an imbalance of serotonin contributes to the development of depression 
And this theory could actually help explain experiences such as eating your sorrows away. So I think we've all been there where, you know, you're just feeling really stressed, things aren't going right, and you just eat a bit too much perhaps to, you know, feel a bit better. Well, for some people this becomes a big problem in depression where you're constantly eating to make your sorrows go away as it were and initially foods high in sugar produce a dopamine response and another theory is that this sudden intake of high sugary foods could help transport more tryptophan to the brain to make more serotonin but this theory is currently being challenged the main kind of hints that there were holes in this theory and that it wasn't completely right was that it takes weeks for antidepressants such as SSRIs to kick in. So SSRIs are one of the most common types of antidepressant med- med- uh, medicine and it stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So it essentially reduces the amount of serotonin that's re- that's taken back into the cells so that more serotonin stays in the synapses um, and yeah so it reduces this so that there is more serotonin available and if depression were purely down to low serotonin levels then SSRIs should um, start to work much faster than they do they shouldn't take weeks to kick in. So further studies have actually shown that people with depression have smaller hippocampi and the SSRIs undo this by boosting proteins that help neurons to grow back, helping new neural connections to form and encouraging the growth of new cells. So whilst it might not directly be related to high levels of serotonin, SSRIs are still important in the um, in the treatment of depression. And so the bottom line, we're still unsure as to whether a low serotonin levels cause depression or their result of depression. Although an alteration in serotonin levels is observed in patients with depression and serotonin may, but as I said, serotonin may not be the underlying cause of the disease itself. So we've talked about quite a lot of different neurotransmitters there. But I hope that gives kind of an idea as to what different neurotransmitters do and actually the varied function of them all. Because I was thinking just before this podcast, like in GCSE science, we learn about neurotransmitters. But all we really learn is that they diffuse across the synapse and help the message to be passed along. But we don't really learn about all these different sorts of neurotransmitters and what they all do and actually the vast range that they all have. And as well as that the vast, um, the huge impact that an imbalance of neurotransmitters can have on our mental and physical health. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up, especially because I think that the one that we usually learn about is probably acetylcholine, although we never talk about it explicitly. And I think it's quite interesting because we always learn about it as part of the reflex arm, because that's what we're taught at, at biology um, in GCSE. 
But I think what I really think is interesting about today's episode is I really like like how everything kind of links together. Like for example, for serotonin, I think I remember studying the chemical like production of melatonin, which has to do with the sleep-wake cycle. And actually, it only differs from um, serotonin by an acetyl group, which has the formula COCH3, and a, methyl- and a methyl group, which basically just shows that if you add two groups to serotonin, it becomes melatonin. And I think like just through the other examples as well, like how GABA and also adenosine relate to caffeine, and how dopamine and GABA and um, both link to addiction, I think that's it just goes to show how everything kind of interplays together. So neurotransmitters, you know, aren't just isolated things, just like how your body isn't just this isolated thing, this component works or this component works. It's actually all these things working together, which I think is really incredible. So I think that about wraps up our podcast today. It's been another long one, which is probably going to be the case for our neurobiology ones, just because they're so interesting and it's so much to talk about. But if you've listened until here, thank you so much for listening and have a great day. Remember to stay warm because it's getting colder here. Thank you for listening and see you next time.